Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes the best acrylics and mediums, core watercolors, and Williamsburg oil paints in New Berlin, New York. An employee-owned company, Golden is dedicated to making the best paints that artists can use in their studios. I've been painting with Golden for over 23 years, and I swear by it. Check out their paints at your local art store or at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. They make amazing coffee and ship their beans to your doorstep so you can have incredible coffee at home. I'm an avid coffee drinker, and I love the coffee that I get from Fulcrum through their subscription service. There's always new coffee to try, and it's always top quality. Check out their coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com and add the code ALFREDSTUDIO to your order and you'll get 20% off. That's a pretty great deal. Fulcrumcoffee.com Why I Make Art is out now. My book from the Sound and Vision podcast has features on 30 artists I've interviewed, tons of quotes from the artists I've had on the pod, and even some sketches from the Sound and Vision guest book. It's 25 bucks well spent, in my opinion. You can get it wherever you get books or from the publisher's website, atelieredictions.com. And if you get it or already have it, please leave a review and rating where you got it. It's been an amazing response from the book, and I hope it gives you inspiration in the studio or in your daily life. Nick Doyle is an artist who lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. He holds an MFA in sculpture from the Hunter College and a BFA from the San Francisco Art Institute. Nick attended the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture in 2014. From 2014 to 2017, Nick was a resident of the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council's Workspace Program. Solo exhibitions include his current exhibition at Periton Gallery in New York called Yes Daddy, and recent solo shows include Nowhere at Stems Gallery in Brussels, Paved Paradise in Detroit, No Vacancy at 56 Henry in New York, The Great Escape at Steve Turner Gallery in Los Angeles, Soft Arrest at Mrs. Gallery in Queens, and Stephen at Invisible Exports in New York. Group exhibitions include the Kentucky Museum of Art and Craft, Pioneer Works, Periton, Natalie Karg Gallery, and Columbia University. I talked to Nick about growing up in Southern California, shame, masculinity, denim, and much more. Here's our conversation. So here's the thing. I, I Maybe I just didn't do a deep dive, but I mean, it, the internet tells me a lot about how you're living and working in Brooklyn, but I don't know where you're from. Oh, yeah. I'm from Los Angeles. Was that hidden? Or is it out there? I have no idea. That's a good question. Um, born and raised? Uh, actually, I was born in like DC metro area in like Maryland, um, and then I moved to California when I was like one. My parents like relocated and then made their way. They moved to Sacramento because my dad was involved in like politics and running people's campaigns for a long time, and then. Uh, they moved to Sacramento and then down to Los Angeles a couple of years after that. Um, so I spent most of my life growing up in Los Angeles in the Pasadena area specifically. Yeah. So but people the, get your memories are LA basically. Definitely. Um, not, not too much DC memory in that first year. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. Though like, uh, spent a lot of time going back and forth to the East coast since my mom's family was all over here. So, yeah. So dad was a polit- no, in politics. Yeah. Was my, mom too? No, my mom was a writer and a thespian. Um, she, I think she was uh, doing, I think when they were still in the, in the DC area, my mom was like, uh, you know, running local pro- public broadcasting and then, um, She'd always been a writer, so when they moved to California and then they moved to Los Angeles, my mom was like, well, I guess I'll become a screenwriter, and then became a screenwriter. 
um, for television and some like made for TV movies and things like that. So like growing up, uh, you know, spent a lot of times like going to sets and stuff like that. And, you know, most of LA is a set. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's like, I kind of had that double image, right? <laughs> that a double image of reality kind of always present in my mind. Um, but yeah, my dad That's was funny like, because I could go ahead. I was just going to say, you could draw a line there a little bit with maybe your work to an extent. For sure, yeah. Well, I mean, pop culture is its one own wonderful thing. Um, and Los Angeles is, like, deeply entrenched in its own image of itself. I mean, same with most big cities, but, like, uh, the whole Hollywood machine is, like, pretty incredible. Yeah, it's um, its own universe, right? It's just got its own... Yeah. I would imagine, even though, like you're saying, other cities have a certain vibe to the hustle or the self-consciousness or whatever it is, but that yeah. Hollywood is its own kind of, I don't know, there's, I don't, there's probably nothing quite like it. No. It's really wild. Showbiz. Like, <laughs> it's showbiz, baby. It's no <laughs> business. Like, yeah, like the town, I, the town I grew up in, it's called Sierra Madre, and it's like the original set for or basically the original invasion of the body snatchers was filmed there. Um, oh, nice. and every year they would sort of like, you know, it was a point of pride in the community and every year they would like, uh, project it on the wall of this parking lot and everyone from town would come and like watch it. And, uh, everyone would be like creeped out about pod people. Um, <laughs> and like there was, uh, one year there was like, there's like a small town square. And then one year, like, um, someone was really upset about, something that happened with the city council. So they like made all these giant pods and then placed them in the town square with all the city council members names on them as like a active, like protest. It's a creative, a creative protest. Yeah. It was really funny. Um, it was a deep cut. Yeah. But I mean like stuff like that was like pretty regular for me growing up with like, you know, I know where the Batcave is and, like, uh, all these things like Rebel Without a Cause and, like, knife fights with James Dean. It's, like, you kind of, like, exist in these, like, huh. Like, obviously, there's, like, tour buses of people coming around and, like, seeing the sights and stuff like that. But I don't know. I think it's very interesting, like, especially since we're living in this moment of, like, social media's impact on reality and our perceptions. Um right. And I definitely think of like Hollywood as a space but that was kind of like originally generating that. I mean, granted, newspapers and uh, have acted as that public forum for a long time as like people's controlling public perception and stuff like that. But it's really jumped into hyperdrive these days and it's making us all crazy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And the visual side of it is so, you know, fast now and such a major part of it. Whereas, you know, back yeah. then it's the written word or there's other formats but now it's just all visual totally like the visual is, is the leading you know the leading uh indicator of everything you know the yeah. look of someone as someone was talking about politicians and you know the race in pennsylvania and mm -hmm. they were saying that the republican didn't do well because he kind of looked like a democrat and the democrat <laughs> looked like a republican so it was almost like the look has totally. a bigger inf influence than the actual policy and i think we've become so um, transfixed and and you know kind of like the visuals have become so normalized in the way that we perceive everything yeah and as an artist I mean we deal in a sense with a parallel universe or simulacra mm -hmm. so it's kind of like you know it's not a, um, a, a a working media that's that disassociated from that kind of like alternate reality you know yeah that yeah you, I guess you tapped in from an early age so you yeah. were born to be an artist. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> or a screenwriter. <laughs> yeah, or a screenwriter. Or actor. Yeah, something like that. I mean, my brother and sister definitely went into acting, um, doing, you know, experimental theater and strange, but lots of, lots of Shakespeare. Um, That's fun. Yeah. But, no, it's funny, because I was talking about, I was having this conversation earlier today with a friend of mine, um, He's a musician. He's also a really talented 
just put anything in front of him, he can like paint and draw and do all the things. But um, we were talking about, I was talking about appropriation and like how complicated it is because it's like um, when you make a good piece of music and you make a good piece of art, like it influences people. And it's like, it hits them and it changes them either neurologically or spiritually, however you want to like look at it. And it's like, it comes through them and then it comes back out. So it's like, um, I feel like, like media knows all this stuff. They know that they can change how people perceive reality by like feeding them certain types of images or certain types of sounds. Um, and so it's like, make it's just being fed to us in a way where we're like such we're such like um, stupid organic bodies. <laughs> it's like we can't help ourselves. And we're also such social beings that we're like deeply influenced by the right. community. And we have such an expansive community because of the internet and that it's like we're an overload and we're actually can't, can't manage it. <laughs> it's making us all stupid. <laughs> um, but anyways, that's like... Yeah, we're predictable models, aren't we? Yeah. 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 No, but I mean, algorithms, the success of algorithms, I think, speaks to that. It's just like they can, you know, you can kind of figure out where people are going to lean or we're just going to be predictable. And, and, you know, definitely, you know, like there's a a shelf life on interest in anything. So now it's just open. (laughs) Like People will say whether it's a war or it's a controversy with an athlete or whatever it is, they'll be like, yeah, don't worry about eight to 17 days this will be over everyone will forget it it'll be out of the collective consciousness and everyone will move on and sure enough two weeks later we're like what what happened exactly there's a war you know it's It's crazy crazy. yeah it's like it's like bird brain um yeah oh my god it's so (laughs) depressing but Whatever. Oh no! We're, I mean, but, we, but we're we're our job is to change that somewhat, right? Is to try to ask questions sure. in a different way, I guess. Yeah. But when you were when you were younger, were you uh, obviously? It seems like you had your, whether by choice or by environment or whatever. But you're you had your ears up to this sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. alternate way of thinking about narrative or visuals or experience is that did creativity cross into that directly or was that just kind of you were an observer of that later on you started becoming like making things or creating to sort of reflect on that experience or was it you know was that something like much later on like in college Uh, or something i mean it must have been much later on like i think uh, i was like a really shy kid um and like, I, I was always making art. It was like, um, my, like I, I learned to draw at like a super early age and I was just like, my teachers would just complain that I was drawing too much in class. I was getting good grades, but they were like, he's distracting the other <laughs> students. Um, and it was just like, I think I always had it in me where I was just like, always outputting or as a way of processing, I guess, like what was happening in my life. Um, so I think it kind of was like that came before I was kind of even really thinking about anything. If that makes any sense. Um, yeah, no, it's like, it's almost like you have a compulsion just to, to draw or make things. Yeah. And and I, I grew up in like a very, I'd probably say sheltered way, you know, it was very like Southern or, uh, not Southern, but um, Southern Californian, like white Christian, like it's just like I, I I don't even know how I came out of that, but I guess like um, it's very conservative. Um, so it's yeah. like I always tell people it's like California, like has like this concept of it being very liberal, but it's like we did produce Nixon, we did produce Reagan. It's like right. these things are deeply entrenched. Um, we have like a huge faction of the KKK. It's like um, white nationalism is deeply, deeply there. And, you know, whatever. We all, Los Angeles and systemic racism and all those things. But no, I think I didn't really, uh, I didn't really, I didn't really wake up to a lot of things until much later. I think uh, most of, most of my friends became degenerate. I shouldn't say that, but (laughs) we were all degenerates and 
Um, I think a lot of us were like processing, um, processing some of these negative dynamics in those places like poorly with uh, self-destruction and things like that. I'm sure you have friends and are familiar with this. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's funny because, you know, as a parent, you like, I, sometimes I think, well, I so I grew up in Pittsburgh, like just outside Mm -hmm. the city. Well, technically in the city, but you know, not downtown. And it's kind of suburban in a way, but you know, it, and it's a small town. And then, you know, you think about like, Oh, what's it, what's it like to grow up in middle America in like a small town? Oh, there must be some things that are so much better because you get this kind of experience. Whereas you see kids growing up in New York city and it's just like chaos, you know, and it's, <laughs> and it's, you really wonder, cause a lot of people will be like, Oh, growing up in New York city, there's so many, you know, they have access to all this stuff. And you would think that the kids just turn out to like drink or do drugs or like, you know, but I feel like sometimes the pressure in suburban places, it, it feels like it almost might be greater because it's a small clique and then it's like kids are all the same. You know, there's less mm-hmm. diversity generally. And, right. you know, there's this peer pressure that I don't know if that and people in the city care as much about because there's just so many people. You just be like, oh, screw that person. There's 4,000 other people to talk to. <laughs> you right. know, like I, I just wonder if growing up in places like that it actually creates more pressure or it's harder, you know, like punk rock stuff came out of small towns generally, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, big city people who were like F this, you know what I mean? Definitely. And I definitely latched on to punk, punk rock when I was a a young teenager. But, well, I think, I think the thing about it is if you're not assimilating to that type of uh, lifestyle or thought process, it's like, it's becomes oppressive very quickly. Um, yeah. and like, they don't like difference and they don't like things that challenge, uh, their way of life, you know? Um, right. even though there's a lot of very alternative and there's a big world out there, there isn't just like white American suburban kids, right. but, um, but yeah, well, and also like, I don't know. The stuff I think about all the time is just like heteronormative, uh, heteronormative white culture and its relationship to patriarchal dominance. And again, like not fitting into those things is like, uh, I, I know a lot of people, I mean, myself included, have experienced intense amounts of like isolation and depression as a result of like those feelings, you know? Um, right. And you're raised in these environments where everyone else is fine with it. And you're just like, oh, I'm, this is not fine. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, makes me crazy. And like, um, so I think a lot of that, I mean, a lot of that upbringing obviously informs like a lot of the work that I do. Um, and I think about all those things and that's in a lot of ways, like my, it is my audience. Um, when yeah. I, when I think about making work, I think about making work from this like perspective of somebody who's in, in these situations and like maybe doesn't manage, doesn't know how to manage it or I don't know. This is probably like, this is too much. Well, I mean, art, I mean, for me growing up, art played that role. It was like, Oh, there's, there's something very different out there. And like, I think when I was a teenager, I became the MOCA in Los Angeles has like a youth, um, youth internship program. Um, and I became like a, an intern there. And like, I remember seeing like, it's like a Paul McCarthy show in the nineties. And I was just like, (laughs) it destroyed everything I thought. And I was just like, this is incredible. Yeah. In terms of like, yeah, I was just like, this is so far from, the sort of buttoned up behaving well person that like everyone else is around me. So it was like that kind of like really transported me and like opened my eyes to like maybe being living a different life and that being okay. Not only okay, right. but like celebrated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Did it have the video of the painter? You know, that video. Yeah. Oh man. That, when I saw that, I was young when I saw that. I mean, not super young, but I, I was pretty young 
and uh, I was just like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> and I was like disturbed by it and transfixed yeah. by it and inspired by it. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, wow, that could, that could be it? You know, right. and it, so crazy. it was just amazing. I also yeah. think of the time. Well, it's I- funny because. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say at the time I was like, so I don't think I got it because I was so like, I, when I was in high school, I really wanted to become a painter. And so it was like, uh, I held probably a lot of the painters that he's like maybe critiquing in high esteem. (laughs) Right. He's like making fun of like everything you're just getting into. You're like, wait, I thought painting was like amazing right totally and they're like no it's just like a bunch of people trying to make money off their dealers <laughs> and just like you know neanderthals and like but totally art right <laughs> like literally degenerates and degenerates and misogynists right. yeah um it's good to ask okay. those questions early on though before you totally buy in right. you know just to know it's out there that what you're you know devoting your life to might just be you know <laughs> chimpish <laughs> totally totally but yeah well, I actually was watching it yesterday because uh, they have it up at Pace right now, or they're they're at least oh, play, really? playing the video um, at like a small Paul McCarthy show. Oh, it's the gift that keeps giving. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just a freak out young artist who might not. Have, I imagine it gets as the years go by too. Just the quality of it, it just gets probably weirder and weirder as time goes on. You know, it, it really does. Yeah. And the weirdest parts are the moments where he catches himself and like comes out of his trance and it like looks at the camera and you're like, oh, you're maybe slightly uncomfortable. Oh I yeah, hope, I hope I imagine. Right. But yeah. yeah, that's a great piece. So, but you stuck with it. You didn't let that video stop you from making art. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, yeah, and I had gone. I went to this arts high school uh, called Loxa, LA County High School for the Arts. It was like. The ca- it was on the campus of Cal State LA and like East LA, so it was like that kind of already. It was like a public school, but you could get in if you with like your portfolio. It was like um, right. that type of thing. So it was like I think that was something that really immediately transformed or exposed me to all sorts of different. Um, different types of people like we had a huge african-american population there was just like the class divide was so crazy because it was like i remember this one kid he like i don't know he didn't have he had a lot of problems at home he he didn't have a bed he but he was so gifted and he was so destitute poor but then also at the same time we're going to school with like movie stars kids you know what i mean right and we're like in the same space and i'm like this is just so fucking nuts but everybody was like really talented. So it was like, um, I think that that was the thing that was really exciting. And then also something that was like very contrasting to my suburban life. Um, it was good. It made you recalibrate probably. And you, you know, you take stock of like, wait a minute, there's a lot of different people, a lot of different situations. Yeah. We're all in here and interested in being creative. You know? Yeah. And it was, there was something really beautiful about it. Um, but then, you know, yeah, that's crazy. I can't. I can't go into too many so, things. So, <laughs> did it? Uh, <laughs> well, did it? Sort of. Was it a predetermined path at that point that you okay? I'm going to go to art school. Yeah. Well, I think I knew in seventh grade. I was like, as soon as I heard about this high school, I was like, I'm going to that high school. Um, and then. And then I went did you go to San Francisco. Well, yeah. School, right. Well, I, I did go to San Francisco Art Institute. I did my first year at MICA though. Um, oh, nice. Which they were very, uh, they're like, you have to choose. At, at that point, I was already doing tons of different things. It was like, I was doing photography. I was like making a lot of music. I was making paintings, like doing weird assemblage sculptures. And then um, at MICA, they were very restrictive about what you could take. So they were like, if you decide your major, you can't really take classes in other departments. It's like, you just have to focus. So they were very singularly focused. Um, And plus I was a California kid and the East coast winters and Baltimore was not my speed. Yeah. It hits Um, different, right? Yeah. (laughs) So I transferred to San Francisco Art Institute. Um, 
which I I applied to out of high school, but I I deferred my acceptance for a year um, and then forgot that I did it. And they were like, we're looking forward to seeing you next year. And I was like, great, because I don't like it in Baltimore. (laughs) Um, Accidental backup plan worked. Yeah, great. Really lucked out on that one. Um, Yeah, so then I went to San Francisco Art Institute, which was very different. It was very, like, there were no rules. There was no one training you how to, like, do anything. Like, um, it was very, like, idea-driven. They kind of, like, were touting themselves as, like, one of the last fine art schools. Like, they didn't do any professional training, Mm -hmm. which I think (laughs) attracted me. But also, at the same time, like, getting out of there was, uh, it's like, I don't know what to do with my life. But... (laughs) Ah, the details. Yeah, they didn't the want details. to bog you down with that. They didn't want to bog you down with that useful information. So yeah, teach you art. But I had a really great um, theory professor there who was like, um, she had her doctorate from Stanford and was like uh, cultural anthropologist, and uh, her class is like really, you know, read Foucault and all the deconstructionists and postmodernists and stuff like that. And like Fun. that. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved that stuff. I was yeah. just like panopticon. I used to dig that stuff. And it was definitely. Compelling. Yeah. When I think, uh, I mean, Foucault really transformed thinking about power dynamics and power structures for me. So it was just like that, that he seemed like the only one that I was like, Oh, like you have maybe a somewhat of a cohesive view of everything. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, so, and that really kind of like transformed how I started unpacking and thinking about a lot of things, I guess, because, uh, it was so rigorous and I love that. Um, that's cool. Yeah. Where did you inspire the work? Did inspire the work? Yeah, Yeah. I think, I think so. That's when I, I think that was kind of the beginning where things started to get more like, um, or at least where the beginnings of some of the work that I, that I do now, I started like messing around with video and making some costumes and doing some things that were just like a little more, um, not just straightforward painting or, uh, they were becoming, that was kind of the, the roots of becoming conceptualized or at least the roots of me actually having a mind <laughs> instead of just being a, <laughs> an idiot kid who, I don't know, was just wandering around bumping into walls. Although I still remain yeah, I an idiot. For, I, I did still, that for a while. Yeah, I'm still an <laughs> idiot kid who's bumping into walls. But, um, but yeah. And then... Yeah, I never went I never went to art school. Cause I oh, think really? You asked, did you, you asked yeah, where yeah. I went to school, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I did Penn State for undergrad because I'm from Pittsburgh. So it was oh, just, yeah. you know, there. And uh, it was a very, like, hands-on kind of, like, you know, like learning, like, traditional painting and all that stuff. And... And, uh, but then like installation art classes and cool stuff, it was very like making oriented. And then I went to Yale for graduate school, which was very, you know, the mixture of the conceptual and the, the, you know, the formal side of things. So, and then Skowhegan after that. So it was kind of like a good mix of all that stuff, you know? Yeah. When did you go to Skowhegan? Uh, 99. So oh, probably like 15 years before you did. So it was probably a lot different. <laughs> I think you had the internet when you went there. Didn't Definitely. Have, we didn't have, we had one computer la- in the, in the, in like the office by the wood shop or something where you could get online Holy and shit. dial up and try to like order something once That's in a while. That's crazy. That it. Did you even yeah. have cell phones? I, I had a flip phone back then. Oh, okay. It was like That's one cool. of those Verizon, like, yeah. you know, flip phones, no smartphone yet. Those were great. Yeah, I don't even know if I, 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 I'm pretty sure I didn't have any service the entire time I was there. Yeah. But it was like back then, you know, you didn't use your phone really much. No. (laughs) Not like now. No. But it was great. It was the best summer. I mean, Skowhegan's amazing. Yeah. The faculty, staff, uh, like we had a great year. Yeah. That's, I feel like that's everybody though, right? Right. Did you have a good one? (laughs) I do. I literally have a. a tattoo with the initials best summer ever. <laughs> oh, nice. I thought you were going to say with a uh, duck itch. <laughs> the duck itch. That's fucking funny. <laughs> Did um, they have that in 2014? Yeah, was that still around? Of course. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> I luckily never got it, but did you, were you, uh, were you not so fortunate? No, I would never go in. I would, I refused to go swimming and people would like make fun of me. They were like, why don't you want to go in there? I was like, I just don't want to go in the lake. I didn't go in the lake once. Huh. And then like it, it started happening. People started coming down with the duck itch. <laughs> I was like, see, what, that's why I didn't go in that water. It became my excuse. I, I was like, yeah, I didn't want to get that duck itch, but I had no idea. I just didn't want to go in the lake. <laughs> yeah. Did you have uh, Did you have faculty there that you really jived with, or that were you know inspirational? Or I had a I don't know. I had a tough time there. Not gonna lie. Um. Work wise or social wise. They collided in a way which I think uh, made it difficult work-wise and difficult social-wise. I just was, I was naively working on a project. You know, it, it's weird, like, uh, I, I, I was at a point where I was, like, still when I was scouting, where I was just making and then thinking about it later and conceptualizing it later instead of kind of, like, having more of, like, a handle on uh, some of the things that I'm unpacking and stuff like that. Um, and I think I naively did a project that, somewhat controversial oh, and also okay. very, yeah. very exposing of myself. And I think was like, um, I was not, I was not in control or aware of at the time of this trauma I was unpacking for myself. And it, it really came off in a bad way. Um, and also kind so of that, did a lot of, it did a lot of damage to me psychologically cause it was un, not healing. Whereas I feel like I was uncomfortable showing the project to people, but I was encouraged by it faculty to show everyone um right and then that kind of i should i don't think i should have listened to those faculty members <laughs> and i should have trusted myself but that i was like oh I that's need to. tough yeah it was a weird situation but so i had a great summer and i had a really bad summer but also at the same time i think it was crucial for me to like have a lot develop the perspective that i think i have now on contemporary masculinity and some of those things so yeah yeah you know i i wonder to i i think about this sometimes because like like i was saying to you when i was at skowhegan or grad school you know there were there was no social media no cell phones no internet really not much and you know and it's a whole different environment now you know what i mean i can't imagine like going to school or like making work or trying to develop your voice when yeah. everyone sees and judges you in such a, like judgment is such a very, you know, serious thing nowadays. And yeah. like when you're young, you make mistakes, you know, you don't have everything mapped out in your mind and it's so tough to uh, put things out there totally. and then you're going to get hammered on anything that's like it all thought of as being, you know, not in the right lane, so to speak. hundred percent. Well, it's gotta be tough. Well, that's what I rec- that's what I respect about comedy clubs is they, uh, they make you like tie up your phone. It's like, you can't record because like people are working yeah. shit out and it's like, yeah, they're working shit out with themselves. They're working shit out with material. They're working shit out with the audience. It's like, um, it's messy. And, and like, if they can't do it, you're not getting any good comedy. <laughs> Everything's going to be neutered, you know, and just like yeah. completely sterile in a way that <clears throat> defies the medium and, you know, well, and I also think shame uh, shame comes in like very strong <laughs> when it yeah. comes to like those judgments because like if you're putting yourself out there, you know, in the arts or music or even comedy, it's like um, you're exposing yourself to a certain amount of judgment no matter what, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And so it's like you have to either develop a strength or like work through your own shame about it maybe some of the material or things that you're trying to like figure out and be comfortable with it because like people will come at you and they will look at it, make it, they'll just make immediate judgments. And a lot of times their judgments always are exposing their perspectives on things, probably more so than what you're actually doing. But, um, I don't know. Shame is a big one for me. Yeah, it's tough. You know, it helps to have like a very thick skin or to not really care much, but it's hard, especially when you're younger. You know, I think as you get older, you get a good sense of like, I don't give a shit, you know, like I'm just doing what I'm doing, you know, you don't quite like it's not like everything hinges on that as much. But 
I remember like when I think the second year I was showing in New York and I had this painting in the back of Protech Gallery. It was like 2002 and it was a painting of the FBI building with a flag draped on the front of it. And I was in there. I walked in because I was, had to pick something up and there was a uh, a UPS guy who was so mad at the painting and he was like <laughs> yelling at the people behind the desk because he said the flag was backwards and he said it was like an insult to America and he was like going off and oh, wow. I was like, damn. I remember being a little shell shocked about it. And I was like, that's the thing, like people can interpret because a lot of times in work you're asking questions that you're not necessarily making a statement. You know what right. I mean? But but you could just be asking questions, but other people assign your you know, oh, because you made that image, you think this way about that and then they will attack you or like just go after you. Yeah. I don't Well, I mean yeah, for sure. Well, and I think also, and there's a couple of things I'll say. It's like, obviously, I, we function socially and morally, or we function morally as social beings. So it's like our community is our guideline, like churches function this way. Um, right. And like, you know, corporations function this way. So like behavior is like, how you behave is, more or less dictated by your community. Um, and I think like shame is like a powerful tool for controlling people, but also on an, on an, on another side, like on an internal side, like shame is like deeply destructive emotionally. Um, yeah. For like a being and also, I don't know, I'm sensitive. <laughs> 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 I'll be the first to admit it. Like I'm really sensitive, so it's like I, uh, I'll carry what people say with me for years, you know. Um, yeah. And like getting past it is like um, getting past that shit is tough. But yeah, when I I think about shame also in terms of like shame is a tricky. I think that in a lot of ways shame will cause people to make judgments that aren't actually things that they think or feel it, it, right. it will, shame will get in you and take a turn where it's like you're behaving in a way where you might think that you're like a moral, right. But like, that's actually just your shame that you've carried and it's transformed into judgment at least like sh this pain has transformed into like hatred, you know? And like we yeah. have a lot, we have tons of that in our country and, I think a lot about, um, I mean, we have a lot of shame in this country. I wouldn't even, yeah. people talk about white guilt, but I'm just like, it's shame, you know? It's like, um, I don't know. I wanted to, I, there was this article in the Atlantic that came out that I want to read. It's, um, what America can learn from, um, like, Germany's way that it's like memorialized uh, the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, and like we've committed terrible atrocities as like a nation. And it's like, we're, it's almost like we're still arguing whether it's true or happened, right. you know, like people yeah. coming up and saying, well, they liked being, people liked being slaves. And it's like, dude, like stop, you know? Yeah. Um, and also that's something in my family, it's like coming to terms, I only found that, I mean, it's obvious, like my family came pretty early on and to this country and like beelined it to the South and like lived in the, in the South for a long time and like, um, ever since my family owned slaves and like my, my, my dad only just started talking about this to me like two years ago, you know, it's like our entire history was kind of like never really discussed. And I think like that is kind of like an important thing to like acknowledge, you know? Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Because if you sweep things under, I mean, just look at history books yeah. when things get swept under the rug and you don't want to talk about it because you feel bad about it because it, the genesis of not covering it is just sweeping it under the rug. Right. Pretending yeah. like, totally. well, we let's just move on. Well, mm -hmm. we won't talk about that anymore. Yeah. And, um, and then after a long time of doing that, 
sweeping it under the rug because you're like, well, we don't want to talk about it. That's horrible stuff, and we're moving on from that. After yeah. a while, people start to process it as, well, that never happened, and that's right. dangerous. That's what's dangerous yeah. about not sort of – and that's what's dangerous about, like you're saying, heavy guilt is it will cause you to be defensive or deny or be proactively – defensive in a yeah. sense that's destructive in a way you know instead of just processing it and being like okay totally. yeah that happened but that was the past we're going to move on from this you know yeah when i my therapist like sent me this video of um this austrian psychologist who um he would do like a large group therapy and the holocaust always kept coming up in these large group therapies. And it was like, he, so this psychologist started kind of like positioning this concept of thinking about epigenetics and then positioning it as if, uh, positioning that with karma, whereas like the concept of karma is like, uh, you know, past lives. Um, but also, and then epigenetics is like, we're inheriting trauma genetically in our bodies and um uh you know in our cultures and stuff like that and so like basically he's equating the two together like epigenetics and karma together so it's like he was experiencing and unpacking group group trauma around um the holocaust and like basically what a lot of people have experienced and to me i feel like in this country we're we're still unpacking, people are unpacking that. And I think epigenetically what I've inherited, let's say, or karmically what I've inherited is this like deep, miserable shame. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, um, totally. No, I totally get it. Yeah. So I don't know. I think about those things a lot. And I guess I'm Do like, you try to not hold it? I mean, because I, I can conceptualize that that past or whatever but then I can I'm always like the kind of person who's like trying to proactively just do like I have this like mantra of like well just do what you can in your life to try to make of course whatever better you know what of I mean but, but it's hard it's you know for some people it is hard to not hold on to things you know what I mean well yeah, well, yeah for sure but I mean it, yeah yeah I mean I obviously there's only so much you can do you know what I mean because like yeah. uh we're only one person. <laughs> I'm only one person. I'm only one generation. I'm obviously like looking back at so much generational buildup that it's like almost impossible to take on. But yeah, obviously, I, I mean, I agree with you. It's like you do what you can and like you try and be the best version of yourself that you can, even though like, you know, sometimes you just don't want to get out of bed. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But ultimately, what? that's the solution. Like, if everyone did that, then sure. we were in a much better place. But yeah. there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people out there that are not like that. Well, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I when I think a lot of people, uh, I mean, I think a lot of white Americans. They, it, I would say it's like a really t- difficult thing to face and like unpack because it's like your heritage is like oppressive oppressive capitalistic racist you know what i mean it's like yeah uh no one wants to like everyone wants to believe that they're good you know so right and like everyone comes from a family there's there's love somewhere you know what i mean it's like but and it's like a really even conversations i've had uh, i'm not gonna talk about my family too much um but I think like part of the problem is like again what we're what we're saying it's like I'm one person I live I'm going to live you know luckily at at best like 75 years you know um yeah. and it's like the arc of the arc of my life is not as long as the arc of history you know and like right. that's that's one of the bigger struggles because it's like it feels like this relentless wave that's constantly hitting you. And I think, yeah, I think one day I'll be tired and I'll let go and die. But until then, <laughs> until then, 
I'll, I'll pull myself out of bed even though it might be late and get up and well, go here, do something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the, here's the last thing I'll say about this particular idea is that I think that, you know, it's easy, like, as, you know, a white male from America, you have that history that you're talking about paddling with. But mm-hmm. if you look at civilizations and you look at historically at all people, most cultures, most places have dealt with people who have been problematic and done mm-hmm. terrible things. You know what I right. mean? It's not like Pol Pot or it's not like, mm-hmm. you know, certain countries in Africa who go, it it happens in Europe. It happens all, all over the world and throughout history. So it's not like something that is specific to one person or one kind of person or one race or one, you know, right. ethnicity or one place. I mean, these things happen and it's human nature, sadly, that mm-hmm. certain humans will do these sort of things. And it's like, you know, to hold that weight, that is like very difficult to hold. So my, sure. my, my theory is if you just, you know, try not to be an asshole and do the best you can, then you're helping out. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, so yeah. In, all, in all that, and it's really interesting to hear you talking about all those experiences and like, uh, and then thinking about your work, I can see some... So I think it's informs a little bit, but why don't you talk a little bit about like your work now, as opposed to like maybe what you were doing in school and how it got to where it got now. Right. Um, let's see. I think in graduate school, what was I doing? In graduate school, I spent like, I spent two years making this like puppet puppet movie that was like uh, about a character named Steven who was like a drunk recluse um, who's like uh, his house gets destroyed in like an earthquake and he like blames the sun for solar flare and then like um, drunkenly decides to hunt down and kill the sun. Um, That's not going to end well for anyone. uh, No, it doesn't end well for anyone. He (laughs) finds him, confronts him, and um, kills him, and then, you know, everything goes black. There's no... Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I was... I think that's... I was sort of, like, again, in in a space where I was, like, just sort of making blindly and trusting that it will lead somewhere. Um, And... At that point, I like didn't I didn't have much control. I, I didn't have much control. I was just like following whatever impulses um, that sort of came to me, and just being like, "All right, well, this guess this is the direction we're going." Um, and then, you know, I got out of graduate school, went to Skowhegan. That was kind of like really messed me up for a while, um, and then I definitely went on a downward spiral for. Internally, psychologically, uh, I was definitely drinking way too much. I was making tons of bad decisions. And then um, what happened, I guess? Where were you at that point? I was in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn? Um, oh, okay. Yeah. No better and place than to no go down place. that road. <laughs> I mean, I'd also, worked, uh, I'd also worked for Tom Sachs for seven years. Um, uh, and that, that really changed like the way I make made things and approached things. Um, yeah. Even though I think me and him are very, very different in how we think and think and operate. Um, but I think once, like when I left his studio was when I went to Skowhegan and I think uh, the combination of leaving Tom's, usually what happens when people leave Tom's is, uh, it's just difficult, you know? It's like when people yeah. leave New York, they're like, have like a psychological, like, am I gonna, it's almost like a FOMO. And then they get a year and a half into like moving to California and they're like, I love it. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, he was such a big figure in my life and he taught me so much about making and creativity and just sort of like pushing through difficult times. Um, and I think when, when I left, I was out of graduate school. I, I, like all the pillars of that were keeping my life stable in certain ways were gone. And I kind of just like, uh, I I'm digressing, but I lost, uh, I kind of just like, I lost my way for a bit and I kind of was just like, had to refigure out. I had to really unpack a lot of stuff that I was ignoring or 
repressing, you know, and just like yeah. deal with a lot of those things that were so I could get them out of the way because I think they were really holding me back from just making art. And I was like, my impulses were self-destructing instead of me channeling those impulses into like art making. Um, right. So, and I think I, I got sober for like six years and then I started like kind of doing a lot of self work and, you know, I used to date Genesis Bellinger. We dated for like nine years she really helped me a lot through that process. Um, and like, she was really good about, you know, keeping me on track and like keeping me healthy and things like that. So I kind of like started to do a lot of self-reflective work in that process. Um, and really kind of starting to think about just like some of my own history and dealing with my own shame and getting ahead of it and to the point where I was like, Oh, like, and then connecting it to some of these like larger concepts about masculinity and, you know, heteronormative, some of the things we touched on earlier of like suburban culture, like suburban American white culture, it's like this heteronormative oppressive reality, which is uh, sort of just patriarchal dominance and always trying to understand like why I never felt like I fit in anywhere. And then, kind of the moments in my life where I was like, oh, when did I do, do feel like that? When did I feel like a man? When did I feel like a, a whole person? And then why, why didn't those things like continue, you know? Um, and I think, you know, I started atta- thinking a lot about American history and unpacking some of those ideas and then started connecting them on. Like, Bell Hooks really changed my life. And actually, yeah. I, th- I think reading... Um, her book on men and masculinity really transformed how I see everything um, because it kind of just connected the dots between um, a lot of the shame I felt and then also a lot of the feelings I have around myself because I, I don't fit into like a header I don't fit into that patriarchal model you know it's like right I don't want to, I don't want to enact violence on other people. Like I don't want to dominate people. It's like, I always was like a sensitive kid, super shy. And it's like those, those things were at a disconnect and always constantly in conflict. So I felt in conflict because of it. Um, and then like looking at America and Western capitalism and those things and how it fits into this sort of dominator model and how masculinity is promoted I mean, my current show is about violence and American violence, Western violence, masculine violence, like, and how all these things, like the patriarchy, the social dynamics of masculinity are all pushing you into like one corner, you know? Um, And then if you, if you assimilate to that corner, it's like you, you, you cut ties with your emotional self. And like, that's, that's impossible for me. And I don't, I don't think it serves anyone. Um, but then if you go against it, it's like you're isolated, you know, like you're not, you're not supported. And I've even, you know, (laughs) I've always been surprised at people who I've always even been surprised at times with people who are like, um, you know, say they support, you know, feminists who support like men getting in touch with their emotional selves, but it's amazing how much respect some people will lose for you when they see you crying in front of them and how they'll desexualize you and things like that. And you're just like this whole, I mean, we just live in a patriarchal society. Everyone's culpable in it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Everyone is like part of it. So it's like, I really just started putting all those things together and then seeing masculinity as this coded language then that America's deeply entrenched in it as well. So like the denim work started coming about, or I was making all this work about American, you know, kind of like unpacking some American history stuff and Donald Trump, Donald Trump was president and it was just like, really just seemed like a dark place. 
And then my neighbor was throwing out, my neighbor was a, a fashion designer and then he was like moving out of his studio and he was throwing away a bunch of fabrics and stuff. And at the time I was just like making stuff out of whatever I could find. Um, and I found this bolt of denim that he was throwing out and that kind of like really clicked in for me. And I was just like, oh, this is, this is the filter of shame that I see us all living with. It's like, this is, has the, the pressure of masculinity tied into, you know, um, the oppressive capitalistic, uh, racist aspects of, um, the antebellum South, you know, it's like all these sort of conflictual dynamics were happening in this material for me. Um, so that was kind of like a, a real tip over point for me, I think in terms of like my thinking, but then also just having a material relationship that like spoke to me in terms of like fitting with this sort of larger issues that I was trying to think about. And also as a spot, a jumping off point for me to like then start telling a story. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, yeah. totally. It sounds like you, at that point you really hit a groove, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. What was, I just saw it and I was like, Oh shit. Like three years from now, I, I just had a feeling I was like, Oh, three years from now, it's going to be very different. It's like, I'm only going to use this material now for a while. And then just like sort of use that as a building block. Um, and it's been good. I don't know. I like it. It's we're still, I'm still figuring out new ways to work with it and expand on it. Um, and then also, um, it's given me like obviously like um, a financial foundation to start doing some things that uh, I was previously more attuned to. Cause I think previous to the denim, I was like just going completely broke producing, like trying to produce projects that were like way too big. Like in graduate right. school, I spent two years on that puppet movie and I was just like, it's almost impossible to sell, you know, <laughs> or like <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's impossible to house like sets and weird mechanical things and stuff like that. And then it's like, I was just, my head was in a space of like much bigger than where I was at as a person. Um, right. So it was kind of like a real, a, a real paring down and then like a reversal um, of kind of like how I used to be creatively. And I'm, I feel like I'm slowly building back towards that space where I can do more wild projects, I guess, if that makes any sense. Totally. So in a lot of yeah, ways, I feel like I've just started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's a good feeling. I mean, it's, it's, well, it, it's not easy, but it no. feels better than just beating a dead horse and yeah. feeling like you're doing the same thing over and over again. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Sometimes when I'll, prime a canvas you just get that feeling of like you're just hitting the refresh button you know it's like this could be anything you know it's like a brand new start yeah totally uh, that's exciting you know like i just and for me i work between because i also teach in pennsylvania so i'm working there three days a week yeah so i have like two studios you know oh wow and so it's fun because i i kind of inherently there's a difference you know when you work somewhere else it's just different even if i bring my laptop home and i'm working on like something digital you know that's different a different environment you're looking at different things and like i'm just starting this new body work in the pennsylvania studio that's just different it feels different and i'm like really excited because you know it's probably to other people they might look at it and be like oh yeah it's not that different but you know little moves (laughs) that you make Totally. As an artist, feels huge, you know. So, totally. um, but there's an excitement <laughs> and a fear in it, but it's it's a nice it's a nice feeling. Yeah. Well, and also, I also think that us like artistic practice, it's like a life thing. It's like a lifelong practice, and that also, like the thinking is really slow. It's not. Yeah. It's not like. Um, writing an essay and you're putting a couple of ideas together just to like get to communicate something. It's like these things are uh, entrenched in emotion and feeling and relationship. And I think like if you can get like a small piece every couple of years, like that's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, as a um, self-described sensitive person, <laughs> um, when, <laughs> when you're in the studio working, do you are you listen to music or do you keep it silent? Like, does that stuff have a big effect on, you know, your working method? Um. Yeah. I mean. I mean, you mentioned you played in the past and you yeah. were into music, so um, yeah. I take it that music's a big part of your life. Definitely. Like, um, I like grew up playing like the violin and taught myself guitar. You know, I was in bands forever. Actually, like, quit yeah. my quit my band to go to graduate school because I was like, this, I can't do both. You know, and also maybe I need to maybe maybe I just need to pick a team. <laughs> um, That's so funny. Yeah. I had the same thing. Yeah. I, I I went to I went to because I got into the Art Institute of Chicago as well. Oh wow! And a lot of my friends went to Chicago to play music. They were in bands, and mm-hmm. you know, so I was like, "Well, I'm not going there because I'll just <laughs> play music. I won't make art. And why go to grad yeah, school? Totally if, uh, for art. And if I'm not going to make it, I'm just going to make music. So I ended up going to Connecticut, and then I found friends and started a band and recorded <laughs> records. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I know music is such a well, great distraction. <laughs> yeah, um, it really is. It's great. Yeah, I love it. Um, but yeah, I I listen to music. I try to listen to books, but I I find that I just like I I'm so involved in making the work that I can't pay attention to it. Um, yeah. Um, so I listen to tons of music. Uh, when I was when I before I had assistants, like I would just binge watch television shows because I was like some of these denim works are like so tedious um, yeah. that it's just like so bored out of my mind that I just need like something. I need something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think music is a great vibe and what I, something I really appreciate about working with Tom is that uh, he would always force us all to make playlists and, you know, as, nice. as a group, as a group, we would all have to like sort of agree on music, you know? Um, so there was kind of like a, uh, at least a collective um uh, a, a collective effort towards like like music and then also educating each other on music you know like maybe this yeah. like, this one guy he was just really into like late late 2000s r&b you know and nice. just like i was like great <laughs> like teach me you know <laughs> um i mean i love all sorts of music so uh, I tend to be pretty open to things. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to have a vibe in the studio. And For sure. Sometimes I, I can listen to some really dramatic music at times. Sometimes it just like intensifies my feelings and, or it just maybe matches some of the feelings I'm having. Um, right. But yeah, what about you? I do, yeah, I do all sorts of music. Yeah. Occasionally, if I'm doing something like you were saying, something monotonous or very uh, time-consuming, or where I can turn my brain off, you know, yeah, I'll I'll put on something that'll distract me from that, like some sort of podcast or a book on tape or something. But a lot of times, it's just you know the music gives me the energy in the studio, and I try to, I'll I'll try at times to match the vibe of what I'm going for conceptually in the in the work. And then mm-hmm. other times I'll just put on something completely just that I feel like I need, you know? Yeah. Like sometimes you just need funk or something or, totally. or something, some dance track or, you know, something with like a beat and other I times know. it's like abstract, minimal electronica, whatever fits, yeah. you know, but, totally. but I love it all. You know, I love yeah. the diversity of music. Yeah. It's also, it becomes one of those things where it's like, what do I listen to? And, or it's like, what's for lunch, you know? Right. <laughs> like how do you it's the right. endless unsolvable problem um yeah it's like today's feels like vietnamese <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know yeah just go there yeah cool well um so what are you working on now do you have anything going on like were you working uh, towards something well i mean it just opened the show in new york at periton um i guess that was a couple of weeks ago and does that does that give you a break for a little bit basically when you a little bit hang something yeah um a little bit i my next deadline was going to be in april but it just got moved to august and that's going to be at the kentucky museum of art and craft um 
Nice. And where is that? It's in Louisville. I don't know if you've ever been out there, but it's a nice, nice it's a nice little museum. Um, Louisville. Joe, yeah, Joey Yates is the curator. He's 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 really cool. He's like a. I like him a lot. He's like a queer punk kid, um, but I mean he's a bit older than me. But um, no, he's just really smart and he's like very with it, and I really appreciate his perspective on a lot of things. So I'm pretty excited to be working with him. Um, That's great. Yeah, and then f- I've never I've never been there. I didn't <clears throat> even know about it to be honest. See, so yeah, I'm excited about that. I no idea what I'm gonna make for it yet. I'm still sort of like in the the fallout and the brain dead from uh, opening this last show. Right. But I'm going to take a break. Also, I think this will be like the longest I've had on a deadline between my, between the completion of a deadline in like three years. So I'm looking forward to like maybe doing some experimenting, like finding some yeah. weird, strange things or maybe making without like knowing what it's going to be or, what it's going to be for right that makes any sense yeah yeah no that's great yeah it's, yeah it's an advantage sometimes to have a little bit of a break so you can almost like digest instead of and there's something to be said for that deadline it just keeps you going and you're productive but once uh-huh. in a while you need that recharge conceptual recharge totally exactly so do you teach graduate students i do yes but yeah so like yeah it's kind of probably like the fatigue that they feel when they're done with oh, school. Yeah. They're just like, I, know, right? I don't want to even look at another piece of art. <laughs> right. I love that cycle where by the time they're ready to graduate, they're like, God, get me out. I'm so tired of critiques <laughs> and school and I just want out. And then like, you'll get the email like two years later where they're like, man, it was so nice. So like having all those people around in the wood shop and like, you know, totally. So you always, the grass is always greener, you know? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's having, having, yeah. Um, Cool. cool. Well, um, so everyone should in New York should definitely check out the show and people can follow you. You're on Instagram, right? Yeah. That's the best. Is that the most uh, active you are on the online? Yeah, definitely. I don't, I don't even, I think it's the only social media I have. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, give me a follow, Nick Doyle three three three. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and go see the show at Periton. Um, thanks so much, man. It was great to meet and great yeah. to talk. Yeah, pleasure. Bye.